Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Welcome back to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am so excited that you are here today to listen to my heartfelt and informative conversation with Jennifer Kemp. Jennifer is a clinical psychologist who works with clients who are struggling with perfectionism and is the author of the book, ACT Workbook for Perfectionism. And Jennifer is passionate about helping caring professionals move towards what's important to them with more willingness, flexibility and acceptance. In this conversation, we discuss what is perfectionism, the helpful and unhelpful ways perfectionism can manifest in our lives, how perfectionism can impact the way we care for ourselves and others, the antidote to perfectionism, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jennifer Kemp. Jennifer, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Hi, it's so great to be here. I really love chatting to you and, and I'm really keen to explore anything that would be helpful for the teachers that you're talking to. Oh, Jennifer, when I first came across your work earlier this year, I just thought this is what big-hearted people need to hear more about because we can often say, oh, we're just an A-type, we just like to cross the T's and dot the I's, or a little bit of a perfectionist. And I thought, yes, we can be, and there's some strengths to that, but there's also some things that get in our way. So that's why I'm so curious to bring you on today to talk all about perfectionism, how it can manifest, how it can accelerate us, and also how it can pull us back. But before we get to that, Jennifer, I'd love to know from you, because you're one of Australia's leading experts in perfectionism, how did you get here? What brought your curiosity to this space? Um, that's a pretty easy question, actually, because I've struggled with perfectionism my whole life. Um, but I didn't really realize that that was what was tying together kind of my stress and anxiety and the problems I was having until I was around thirties in my early thirties. And that was when I went back to do my clinical masters, um, I discovered then that like, (laughs) This was a problem that had just been like pervading my life and it still is, to be fair. I've had some major like issues with it recently with all the stuff that I've been doing. So I'm personally fascinated by it and the work that I've been doing has been trying to sort of put a framework around trying to understand not just my experience but the experience of my clients as a psychologist the experience of um, the people that I meet and talk to on this topic because, yeah, I'm just really passionate about it. Uh, and it's something it's something that we've always, I think, seen as like a personality trait. I think it's always been treated as something that's kind of baked into who you are. But the more I've looked at it, the more I've realised that this is something that you can actually change in yourself and you can those kinds of, uh, you already said, sort of the the quite helpful things about perfectionism, you can actually, you know, dial back some of the unhelpful aspects but get to keep those helpful aspects of perfectionism. And I think with a bit of work, a lot of people can do that and it really is life-changing. Oh, it's so interesting that you say that it's your experience that really brought you here and that's something that I've noticed in every conversation that I've had in this podcast is that, 
So it starts with our own curiosity of how do I understand this and then gets to the point of, oh, I have some level of understanding and some level of, it's never control, but some level where I can manage it more. And then think, wow, if I could give this to somebody else, we could give them a little bit more relief maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and be able to take sort of, yeah, dial back those unhelpful behaviours, those things that they're doing, but really um, and take a lot of the stress and pressure off their day, I guess. Get to keep that kind of those aspects of perfectionism that are a, a kind of healthy striving, I guess you'd say. Keep that part because it is very motivating. It is very motivating to do well. Um, and, you know, that desire to do well and to do excellent work is not something that I'd never want to take away from people but, but the, yeah, as we talk about it today, I'm sure we can unpack there's quite a few unhelpful aspects that just completely get in the way of that, um, and that's what we need to address. Oh, fantastic. So let's address it. Let's kick things off with a definition or an understanding. <laughs> what, what even is perfectionism? Yeah, so I've already said that it's not a personality chat. Well, honestly, you can consider it that. Like, if that's your jam, that's fine. Um I just tried to look at it as something, as a set of behaviours that is learned. I'm a behavioural therapist and I tend to try and break the world down. It's it's an arbitrary way of breaking the world down, but like teachers, I guess, you're kind of looking at behaviour all the time and working with what, what behaviour you're seeing in front of you. So I look at perfectionism as a set of learned behaviours that have been reinforced over time, much like as a teacher you'd be shaping behaviour as well in the classroom. We all have experiences that shape our lives and um, whether that be our parents, our, um, our, our education, our schooling, the kind of high standards we observe in others, wherever we kind of learn it, we learn that if we strive really hard, we can do really well. But perfectionism sort of takes it that step further. So it's setting really, the first thing, I guess this. I slow down a little here. There's sort of five different things I look at, look for when I'm looking for perfectionism. The first one is the sort of striving towards excellence, which again, as I've said, there's nothing wrong with that. But it becomes unhelpful when that that striving becomes bound by quite rigid rules. Like I must have a perfect GPA. I must get an A or an A plus on every single assignment. Um, I have to get you know high distinctions, and they're just the sort of educational ones or you know, I must have a perfect body. I must have, must be, you know, perfectly socially confident. I must look perfect all the time. Whatever those standards are, they become kind of rigid rules. And when they become rigid rules, then they become problematic because we're setting a standard that's that's obviously very high, but also something that we're continuing to set kind of just out of reach. I should just be able to do a bit better and continuing to raise that over time. And, and, and any perfectionist knows that um, there's that there's this sort of thing that you can do where you say, uh, oh, yeah, well, that was pretty good, but I probably could have done better. And so next time I'm going to try just a little harder. I'm just going to do it a little better than that. And that so you're constantly setting your standards just out of reach, essentially. So And then basing how you feel about yourself on that. So if you're setting standards that are out of reach and you base how you feel about yourself on that, then you're probably always going to be pretty terrible, actually, because you can never kind of reach these standards. So that's the first thing I look at 
is are there, there's kind of standards there that have become rigid and rule bound and have become um, and that continuing that continuing to be raised over time. The second thing that kind of goes with that is a fear of failure. Now, we all have different fears in our lives, but the one that seems to be common for perfectionists is being scared of failure. And um, when I say failure, I mean failure in the broadest sense, Meg. So like um, locking the keys in the car or um, forgetting someone's birthday or sending a text message with a spelling mistake in it, which sometimes I actually ask my clients to do and the look on their face when I say you have to write your, not your, and you can't write, correct it, and you can't say my psychologist made me do it. The horror, you know, um, that the apostrophe police, you know, to break that rule. Um, and um, so any kind of mistake becomes something that is sort of shameful and needs to be avoided at all costs. So we're setting really high standards and then we're really ashamed, like really scared of failing to achieve them in some way. You know, even if it's like making a social mistake, like saying something awkward or jumping into a conversation at the wrong time. For someone who's struggling with perfectionism, that is really uncomfortable and really awkward um, and and something you just definitely want to avoid. So maybe you won't talk at all or avoid social situations so that you can't make these mistakes. And the third thing I'm looking for <clears throat> is a is this sort of pervasive self-criticism. So I have these high standards, I'm scared of making a mistake, but when I can't meet my really high standards, then I beat myself up for doing it. And this is something that, honestly, I work more and more. If I have to focus on one area, and we'll probably talk about this a bit more, but um, <clears throat> it's this pervasive need to sort of pick ourselves apart, you know, to, to like, um, highly sensitive to any error that you might make and then constant critiquing over, you should have done this, you should have said that, how could you have done this? And sometimes that criticism, in my clients at least, can be really mean, like really mean. <clears throat> the way that we we speak to ourselves is really kind of outrageous when we think about us, that we would never speak to someone else like that. So naturally, with those three things, it would lead to a whole bunch of different behaviours designed to avoid making mistakes and avoid the self-criticism that will come with that. So that might be spending a long time preparing for your lessons, spending I'm making sure all of your slides are completely perfect, and I do get sucked into that one so often I can't tell you. Um, do uh, like doing a lot of checking and rewriting and reworking of work, or it can lead to like this is not going to be perfect, so I'm not going to do it at all. So like under preparing, not doing any kind of work because it's never going to be good enough anyway. So I'm kind of opting out. So it can go either way. And those behaviours are the problems. So being scared of failing isn't a problem in itself. It's all the things you're doing to avoid failing that become the problem. You know, staying late after work, working late into the night or on weekends so you end up sort of burning out. I know that's a big thing that you're working with people on is like how to self-care. This is one of the ways like that overworking can really lead to a sense of burnout. So those kind of bigger, the fifth thing that I'm looking for is that kind of implications for your life. Is it causing you stress? Are you getting really anxious, burning out? 
um, getting depressed because you're overworking or kind of underworking, you know, under-engaged, pulling away from things and getting disconnected from what's meaningful for you. So <clears throat> there's no one way. The stereotype of perfectionism is that kind of A student, overachiever, high achiever kind of person, but really it can look completely the opposite. So that's why I kind of I try to break it down into these, these behavioural processes, really, and see if they're there. And that helps me work out, okay, I think there's a bit of perfectionism happening here. And often people aren't even really aware because they haven't, they don't fit that stereotype, so they don't see themselves that way. But actually it's the same processes that are playing out that are unhelpful in their lives. Oh, that makes so much sense, really thinking about how it manifests in different ways and having those clear five areas coming in. So we've got high and unattainable so it's for me it feels like the goalposts just constantly just shift a little bit so maybe the fact that where you are now three or four years ago you would have been absolutely wrapped but you never probably felt wrapped because there's always just a little bit more so that's sort of the first part the way that I understand it the second part is that fear of failure so that fear of what will people think if I don't have the perfect document, if I don't um, help in the perfect way, if I don't follow up that phone call perfectly or write the notes. So that fear of um, failure, which I think is really interesting. And the third part, and I agree with you, this intensity around the way that we speak to ourselves. You know, every now and then when I'm working with teachers or parents, I get a little grasp of the way that they speak to themselves, just sort of just pop up just a little bit and I think, wow, like, imagine, imagine if we spoke to our kids or students like that, they would never speak to us again, you know. So Exactly. That, that and then the next one, what was the fourth one? The fourth one is all the things that you're trying to do to get away from either the self-criticism or the failure, experiences of failure. So that's either uh, we can sort of think of it as avoidance strategies, really. So active avoidance is maybe working harder and striving to just make sure you've checked everything or doing things more than once, those sorts of things, or a kind of passive avoidance where you opt out, you procrastinate, you put it off till later. Procrastination, which I didn't mention, is a hallmark of perfectionism and something that so many people struggle with. And um so that kind of, oh, I can't do it right, so I won't do it now. And um, you get it? The thing about this that I'm looking for is that each time you kind of avoid it or work harder to avoid the mistake, each time you're successful in evading that mistake or that self-criticism, you're, whatever you've done is is negatively reinforced. It's taken away that that uncomfortable feeling of failing or self-criticism so that negatively reinforces that behaviour. So that's how you can end up in these really long-term avoidant habits that you might say, why don't you just start earlier and get it done on time? But because that pattern has become so reinforced that you keep doing things that in the short term give you relief but in the long term cause you problems. Oh, yes, and that word procrastination, every time I say procrastination in any of my workshops or any kind of training, you just see people's face light up and laugh because, like, yes, and then nothing gets a crowd going more when I ask people to talk about the ways that they procrastinate. Like the whole room becomes alive with 
I know for me it was always procrastinate baking. Like I always have had an essay due. I just feel better if I could write an essay with a smell of cooking. Like it would just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or like, you know, I've just sat down to write this essay and I really should mop. Like honestly, why is the floor looking like this? I never look at it in that any other times. And so, you know, that avoidance of doing a task that I need to get into and then a really common pattern that I see um, in myself, not as much now because I consciously work on it and it's an effort, but working with others is that, oh, I do really well under pressure. So if I leave it late, that's when I really do well. And I started to learn that I had just told myself that that was a bit of a story. And the as the stakes got higher, I couldn't leave it to just a week out or a day out. You can't create those kind of essays like that. So thinking about the avoidance. And I really thought it was powerful. You said that final bit about how it's showing up in your life and is it actually affecting your life? Is it a problem? It may not even be a problem. I know for a lot of the people that I work with, a lot of these patterns they seem to get away with for a long time, but the things that seem to trigger some challenge is if they have children and then come back into the workforce and try and work at the level that they were working at before. So coming back part-time, very hard for part-time educators to not feel like they should be checking their emails every day and be onto it and on top of the things. And the next time I see it really get challenged is when they step up in a leadership role. So if they've gone from being a classroom teacher where they feel very competent to a head of department or a head of school and wanting to be competent in all of the areas. So is that something that you've noticed? Yeah, look, I I see I see in each of those transitions a step up in the, I guess you could say the cognitive demands or the cognitive load as well, right? Once you've become a mum and you go back to work, you're still thinking about who's picking up the kids, who's cooking, what the hell we're having for dinner, and all of that is going on, plus you're trying to concentrate on your class and trying to find time to do the, you know, your prep for the next week or whatever or marking or whatever you're doing. So it, it just becomes more balls in the air that you're trying to juggle. So if you're trying to do that in a perfectionistic way, like get all of those things right, you're, like you're going to be exhausted and probably feel like you're failing all the time, which I think feeling like I'm failing all the time is something I've got better at <laughs> because I can't really ever meet that standard in a sense. You know, I don't, I say that lightly because I, I don't feel like a failure, of course, but I do kind of have, it is hard to get used to that idea of like, okay, well, I haven't done that quite right and I forgot this and not to beat yourself up about those things. So definitely that transition is huge. And the step into leadership as well, again, you've still got, well, there's, a, there's the unknown, the cognitive loads of like, how do I lead and influence people? How do I think at a strategic level? How do I do all of that? And, and that you're not trained to do that actually at university. So you're trained to be a teacher at university. So that next step up, I imagine, would also increase your cognitive, you know, loading the amount that you're trying to sort of both learn and do at the same time would, particularly if you still have a bit of a classroom role as well or, yeah, all of those transitions. You'll see it in kids, the, the sort of big transitions from primary to secondary and from sort of um, middle school to senior school. And, and then you and some kids do really well going into senior school. They can manage in the structure of school. 
um, and they can really focus on their grades and they can get away with their, their procrastination up to a point where suddenly maybe they're at university and they're wanting a 5,000-word essay and they want you to do a full research project on this thing. And no, you can't leave that to the last week. You're right. <laughs> just, just not going to work. Um, at some point that those strategies fall apart. I, by the way, am not a procrastinator in that sense. Like uh, my striving would be starting early <laughs> and handing it in early, but spending too long on it, you know, oh. spending overworking it would have been more my style. I've never done an all-nighter or never stayed up late to hand in an assignment because I've always already done it. Um but it, um, but that has its own cost because I stress two, three weeks earlier than everyone else. <laughs> really worked up about it then, creates emergency then. So, um, yes, it is really interesting how different it is for everybody uh, in, in, and how any transition in your life and any change can make take what is kind of working as helpful perfectionism into a really unhelpful area. I'd say, yeah, it's a good pickup. And it really gets me curious because what we said earlier is that, you know, perfectionism isn't necessarily a trait. It's these learnt behaviours. And so what I always find interesting with learnt behaviours is generally they serve a purpose until they get, they don't, you know, so they've worked for us for a certain point. So I'm thinking about, someone that really worked at school and you got all the kudos, you got all the things. I remember when I became a prefect, someone just made an off-the-cuff mark remark like, oh, great, now you have to be perfect for 12 months. And, you know, so like this idea of like prefect, like just change the letters around, like perfect, and trying to maintain this perfection and this proving and I'm on top of it and, you know, it can be rather exhausting. And then if we take that mindset into our work and then into the way that we raise children, into the way that we care for um, other people, I think that's really interesting. And I think it's probably a little bit slippery in the fact that it's harder to catch, but this perfectionism can show up in the way that we try and help others as well. And I know that you've written a lot about this and I'd love you to help people understand how this can manifest in every area of our life and the way that we want to help and be there for others. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that you said when you stand in front of teachers and you start talking about some of these behavioural patterns like procrastination, how, you know, the room comes alive because that's what happens to me when I'm talking to psychologists as well and uh, and I start talking about their own perfectionism that or we're just talking about this topic and, they come up afterwards and say, actually, you know, I'd really like some help with my own stuff um, because I, I, I think it's I, I've sort of, and I love presenting on this topic, the perfectionistic helper, and I've actually also presented to physiotherapists and spoken to doctors about this. There's this kind of, for any helping professional, teachers included, where your job is to help others in some kind of way you're drawn to those jobs because you really want to help. So strive, striving to be useful, be um, be good at what you do is the difference between perhaps, you know, for me, someone going home and having a horrendous few weeks or having a better life. Like the stakes seem really high actually at times, 
And um, as teachers, you're you're there motivated to help your kids learn and you want to bring out the best in them as well. So that puts a whole lot more pressure on, I think, to do a good job. Um, That the influence you can have is just so profound across a period of time on a a young person that um, it drives those standards, I think, as much as anything. And the fear of failing, you know, what if they don't learn it? If you're a year 12 teacher and you fail to teach your class maths and they all get terrible marks and don't get into universities, like, yeah, so there's a lot, <laughs> a lot of pressure to kind of be effective in the time that you have with them. Don't have a lot of time and there's never enough time, is there? The same in therapy. There's never enough time. So what can we do with the amount of time that we've got and be effective um, one of the standards that therapists, I don't know if you relate to this, but one of the standards that um, therapists often have for themselves is I must be, I must be, must help every person like in every session. So I must be effective and always operate at my peak level of performance and enthusiasm. These kinds of standards as a professional would teachers have similar Standards yes. yes, absolutely, and they get down on themselves if they haven't presented that lesson to the best of their ability. And just a side note, something that lots of educators noticed during remote learning is that that got amped up heaps more because they weren't getting the physical feedback in the room because a lot of teaching you're getting lots of feedback constantly from eye rolls or eye looks or side movements. Like you, you're constantly, you know, changing your body and the way that you speak into the feedback. So with remote learning, a lot of that's gone. And so a lot of teachers were finding that they were like like really amplifying their movements and feeling a little bit like the circus, like here, look, performing, I've got this and click here and link here and, you know, really trying because they were missing that feedback and because they didn't have the feedback, they were over trying to perform and entertain and try and get the right clip or this. And so there is a lot of external pressure that every lesson, it's a value, it's a good one, and they're, they're on and performing. And not just in the classroom, lots of teachers feel like every time a student comes to them, they have this the feeling that they have to get it right in how that they respond or every phone call, getting it right. You know, I remember sweating on the phone calls because we would say, for example, we'll put up the netball teams so we put up the list of netball teams and I knew that I'd get phone calls by recess, even though the, the girls hadn't gone home yet. I just knew there'd be text messages home, didn't get make the team. You'd be expecting a phone call about why didn't you get into this team? And I remember thinking, oh, I want to soothe her. Like I want to soothe this parent. I want this parent to think that I'm a good teacher, I'm on top of it, you know, this is the decision and feel okay with this decision. And it used to really stress me out because these phone calls are very hard because I, I I realized with a bit of wise advice from my dad who said you're never going to be able to give that parent what they want. They want their child in the team and you can't do that. And the one time I did it just because I couldn't tolerate the discomfort of the conversation, I had an extra player for the whole season and that created so much more discomfort for the whole season because I had phone calls about there's not enough court time and that created a whole other world <laughs> of issues. And so it was great when Dad just gave me that friendly reminder that you're not going yeah. to be able to give them what they want and it's going to be a challenge because you want to be able to give them what they want and always be that great teacher that provides 
and that's the way that it is. And so I had to learn to be comfortable with the discomfort that those phone calls are going to come. I'll have to say that there's X amount of students in a team and unfortunately on this time they missed out. Sounds like every time I speak to to teachers, it sounds like dealing with parents is one of the hardest parts of the job, one of the most uncomfortable parts of the job. Is that right? Yeah. You just can't keep them happy. It's really uncomfortable. And I think what you've just said there is so powerful. You just can't keep them happy. And as educators, we want to keep everybody happy. And that's where I find the skilled educators really have learned to be able to tolerate the discomfort of they didn't make the team try again next year or you know there's some parts you're doing well but here you've really got to work a bit harder you've got to put a little bit more Mm -hmm. effort in and that the more we can be comfortable with the unhappiness and the discomfort everything starts to flow quite well but it's hard if you've got in your mind that you want to be seen as on top of it and the good teacher and those things. If you want to so be liked, yeah, you know, if you liked. want to be liked and not offend anyone, then you're on a bit of a hiding to nowhere, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's ways. a race to nowhere. And also, <laughs> um, you know, there's at times there's that group of parents that may be in the car park and you know that, that that'll travel and being able to just withstand that. And something that I like to work on with educators and also parents, because parents are in the same situation, trying to have uncomfortable conversations with other parents or with teachers and bringing feedback to teachers. And teachers don't always like getting feedback because we're all human. That This sort of plays in all the different directions. Is that at the end of the day, are you doing your best? Are you doing, is it good enough for you and your students? Like I and coming back to this idea of good enough. And for a lot of staff, a lot of parents, that's hard initially, but then it's you sort of see them have this big sigh of relief of like, yeah, that was good enough. Like it was good enough. I don't have to be a perfect helper in every moment. I don't have to perfectly be there for my children or perfectly be there for my students. I just need to show up and be good enough consistently. Yeah, yeah, and that in within that good enough, I think it sounds like there's a few things. One thing that I hear you sort of saying is also this idea of doing what's important. You know that that that's what's good enough is the is the doing the things that are important for really your values and why you're you are doing what you're doing as a teacher. It's to help kids learn now. The parents being happy about that is secondary, really, isn't it? So am I showing up? Am I engaging with those students? Am I being genuine? Am I being the person, you know, the kind of teacher that I want to be? That's enough, okay? Mum and dad, you know, they their happiness or their opinions about my work, sometimes I imagine the kids, quite often, the kids being happy about that is secondary as well, right? <laughs> yeah, well, the kids aren't, yeah, lots of kids aren't fussed, you know, if they didn't make the team. And that's why I just love about a lot of the students that I've worked with in my time is they know who's better. They just know. It's not like it's a secret. They know who's faster. They know who's slower. They know who's can write the English essays kind of effortlessly. They've got tabs on each other. They know. And, you know, teachers have a bit of an insight. 
And then I suppose it can be hard for time at, for parents because they're not seeing the whole cohort, the whole collective and how it sort of balances out. But the most of the young people that I work with, when you explain it to them, like, yeah, that's fair enough, makes sense, no problem. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's interesting, isn't it, because they have that bigger view. And so keeping people slack. happy is really, yeah, sorry. Lots of students are much better at understanding. I still remember yeah. one student, like I spent a lot of time with her, and I remember sitting down one day because I heard her. She was talking to her friends and um, she's like, watch out for her. She looks nice, but she's a B-I-T-C-H. <laughs> and I was like, oh, gee, radio. I'll, um, I'll, I'll have a, I'll, so I had a chat to her because I chatted to her regularly for a variety of reasons. And I remember just sitting with her one day and said, I know we have to, we talk a lot and there are a lot of things that we're working on, but I am doing this because I think you can do it. Like I am doing this because I believe in you and you have got so much potential. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like I can see so much potential for you. And so the reason why I'm hard on these few things is because it's going to make such a difference for you. And she was like, oh, really? <laughs> oh, I just thought you were being hard. And once I explained the why, she was on board for the whole year and we went on to have a fantastic, you know, relationship till she finished school. And But it was she just needed to have that conversation. And I found with lots of students, if you just explain the why, like, oh, fair enough, miss. Yeah, 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 interesting, isn't it? The why is so important for all of us. So in the end when we're trying to change any kind of behaviour pattern, any kind of unhelpful behaviour pattern, Knowing why is the first step. So, like, getting caught up with the big problems with perfectionism is getting caught up with little little things that don't actually make that much of a difference. Like spending an extra couple of hours poring over this report that you need to write because it has to be completely word perfect and formatted beautifully when no one's really going to read it or care or value that. Um, so kind of getting back to that why I think is really important. Keeping everyone happy isn't always that important, really. Keeping having students always like you is probably going to get in the way of being a teacher, actually, because you do have to lay down the law at times. You do have to be firm and your job is to direct them and towards their learning. Um yeah, telling the parents, like, I'm sorry, but she's in the B team, she's not in the A teams, that's that's nothing I can do about that. Whatever those decisions are, I guess, comes back to what's important to you, comes back to those values, doesn't it, really? Comes back to the reasons why you're being a teacher in the first place, why you've chosen that career, which is, you know, not an easy one to pick. It's, it's a hard job. Uh, don't take my hat off to teachers, really. That is that is a hard job. So, um, and perhaps you don't realise it when you sign up. <laughs> hard oh, no. Be. I don't think. <laughs> no, no. I, had I don't no think idea. psychologists do either. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think. Years. I think um, we don't have an understanding or much insight into how much the emotional labour of being responsible for young minds has on us. And as we're talking, I'm seeing layers and layers and layers. So I'm seeing that responsibility for young people 
and a layer of feeling like I've got to get it right. And then the layer of I want to show my colleagues that I do know all the things. I've read the book. I've done this. And then also the presentation that's spot on and every page number's correct and all of those things. What I'm starting to see very clearly is it's potentially taking us away from that first layer of why we're here and to be in connection with other humans because it feels like and it sounds like if we're displaying a few of those key um, behaviours that we talked about earlier, that's taking us away from being present because it sounds like a lot of this um, behaviour is very future-focused and what-if-focused and so that's taking us away from that magic of presence and connection. Does that yeah sound yeah it's it, it's um yeah no that's exactly right. It's actually taking quite a defensive position or an avoidant position, um, isn't it? It's like I'm going to protect myself from feeling really uncomfortable here because I maybe I didn't do the best lesson plan. Maybe I wasn't so clear when I explained that. Maybe that parent isn't happy with me. Um, and I'm so scared of those things happening that I'm kind of backing myself into a corner here, just trying to make sure that I don't fail, which I think actually takes you, yeah, completely away from that more healthy, valued future focus. It keeps you kind of checking in the now and looking back to make sure that I didn't make a mistake. It takes you very much away from that. So that's one of the things that I do when I work with people on perfectionism. The first thing we would unpack is like, where, where do you, who do you want to be? Like, where, do, how do you, what is important to you? Um, and how is what you're doing kind of taking you away from that right now? Uh, whether that be a young, and I've had um, training teachers and um, as clients and, you know, in what way is all this extra work kind of taking you away from what you want to get out of your placement, for example, which is, and they'll say, well, I, I really want to learn how to connect with the kids and I really want to learn how to kind of express my ideas clearly, but I'm exhausted because I'm spending you know, six hours a night trying to get exactly the perfect lesson plan. So those kinds of, those kinds of behaviours then might be also, I would say, rewarded at university in the classroom are really a problem and so we're trying to to sort of okay let's find an appropriate balance and and what level of discomfort what level of risk could you take that the lesson might not be perfect in the service of how you want to show up as a trainee or as a teacher in this moment so and then and when I say discomfort, that kind of discomfort will be the self-criticism that's running in your head. Um, when I sat down to 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 write, like was doing a lot of writing that long ago, I would have a critique running in my head that was going, this is shit, this is shit, this is shit. No one's gonna read this. Everyone's gonna think this is a joke, this is shit. Like some days it was relentless. And I still sat there just typing away. Um, and eventually, and, and I still have those thoughts like, oh, no one's going to like this. This is going to be, you know, that people are going to think it's, a, you know, like my peers weren't respected or something like that. I push on anyway. And because it's what I'm doing is important to me. So it's doing what's important in the presence of 
like a lot of sometimes quite uncomfortable self-criticism, a lot of sometimes quite physical fear of failure. So I kind of might feel tense or tight across my chest or a bit sort of sick. If I make a mistake, I feel sick in my stomach. So I can feel kind of clenched in my stomach if I'm really worried. And, of course, there's nerves and, you know, you can have all sorts of different physical sensations going on as well. And am I still going to show up and do what I can in that moment and focus on what's important? So we work together therapeutically. We work towards that, not not one of those throw-in-the-deep-end experiences, like let's put you out in front of the whole school as a trainee and, you know, you run a lesson for 600 students or something, kind of not throwing you in the deep end, but let's just see if we can find experiences where you can learn to do what's important in the presence of discomfort, which is where we come back to experiences like sending a text message with a spelling mistake in it. Can you be uncomfortable in that way? And what shows up when you do it? And let's let's explore that. Now, if you were to explain a maths concept and maybe just be a bit less clear than you like, can you, you know, sit with the fact that maybe you need to do it again and maybe you need to explain it another way and maybe you made a, in doing my little air quotes, mistake here, you know? Um, uh, can you can you find a way because it's important that these kids learn and it's important for you that you do a good job of being uncomfortable? Can you find a way of, of sort of making that happen? So in acceptance and commitment therapy, we we call that willingness or acceptance, that willingness to feel uncomfortable in the service of your values, taking action towards your values. Oh, I think that's so long winded. Yeah, and beautiful to think about how your values can keep moving you forward because I know, Jennifer, you have just released a book. And so for me, the idea (laughs) of you sitting down to write and tolerating that in order to serve the world, you know, the book is called The Act Workbook for Perfectionism, and to bring that gift to the world, I think is just so powerful because you are an example or you're walking your talk. You've experienced something and you're moving forward towards your values in order to give others the opportunity to do that. And that is the real goal here, I think. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. That's what I really, that, that's what I really enjoy doing is helping people to open up and to be able to live their lives with much greater freedom and much greater um, capacity to find fulfilment and enjoyment, not happiness in that kind of, yeah, I'm so happy kind of, but that kind of more richer experience of, of life, of that doing something that's meaningful and has purpose. Many of the people I work with, well, I mean, I think if you, you don't have to dig very deep to find some sort of value around helping in any client, whether that be helping their elderly parents or helping their children or being a caring person and and helping in their work. You could be working with a lawyer who says, yeah, I really love helping people solve these problems. Or you could be working with an educator who says, I love helping kids to learn. Um, Helping is, is I think, one of those core values you'll see in just about everybody. So I love being able to help people unlock and um, what what ends up 
you know, these, these behaviours to try and this defensive position to avoid failure really holds you back from living that way. So being able to kind of open up to, the, to those experiences and I would say um, all the messiness that comes with that because it's not easy and it is uncomfortable and, and all sorts of stuff is going to show up in those experiences. Sorry, I think you just heard my dog. It's a typical thing with podcasts. He decided to get up and move around right now. Not a problem. <laughs> and there's two more things um, that I'd love to talk about before we wrap up, and they're two new thoughts that I haven't had. I've just had them since having this conversation. Mm-hmm. And one is, is there some kind of narrative or conversation around people who see others as um you know, so competition versus collaboration. Because as I'm thinking back and thinking of some of the people that I work with, some people who get really stuck in this perfection mindset find it hard to collaborate with others. And then I've noticed that some people who are in that more good enough, I have a crack, I have a go, Mm -hmm. can really Mm -hmm. embrace collaboration. And I've just never sort of seen um, this clearly in my mind before. Is that something that rings true or what do you think? Look, I'm, I'm always, I think there would could definitely be a connection there. I, I haven't actually put much thought into that myself, so that's something I might take away from this conversation and explore a bit more. I, I do know that doing group work for me can be a bit of a nightmare, um, and when I was at uni and quite perfectionistic, it was because often the work wouldn't, you had to collaborate, you had to lower your standards because there was always people who either wouldn't do anything and you ended up having to do all the work to make it good enough. So it is a bit of a nightmare as a perfectionist or would do work that, yeah, just wasn't that great (laughs) and you had to (laughs) fix it. (laughs) So, yeah, I think that there would definitely be a connection in that way because working, collaborating me does mean um, letting go of some of that. If there's a lot of rigidity around those standards, letting letting go of some of that and opening up to perhaps a whole different way of doing something. I would find that a whole lot easier now. I actually quite enjoy collaborating on projects and coming up with something new. But I'll still think, oh, I don't like their slides or I don't. <laughs> but, and I might covertly fix some of their formatting, but I try to hold back, you know, because I see value in that, in the in the putting together of multiple ideas. But it is hard. The more rigid you are with your standards, it's going to be really difficult to collaborate. So, yeah, I think there's probably something in that. I think that's really interesting and I'm going to think about that more. And another thing that I just noticed is maybe for some educators and leaders in schools, they're feeling all of this. And it's getting them the praise or it's getting that external reward in school. However, at home, it's not. It's like the two systems, the school system and the home system, are getting different versions of them. So I often get people say, you know, school gets the best of me. School gets me and home gets the rest. So it's like I've got these standards at school and I do the performance at school and then once I walk through the door, I'm done. So I've never thought about that before, but it's something. Yeah, that's well, quite perfectionism. Common. Yeah, it doesn't apply um, equally across all areas in your life, does it? And I guess if it's you're working exceptionally hard in one area, you are not going to have a lot left in the tank 
Um, but you'll find people who have, you know, perfect homes but not really that perfectionistic in their work and then vice, and vice versa who live in just a complete mess and um, that have this sort of pre- outside presentation of being, you know, the perfect teacher, perfectly on top of everything. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, it's something that's important to sort of think about. You can have a messy home and be a perfectionist. In fact, actually, perfectionism is one of the characteristics you'll often see in hoarders. So it even goes, because I can't find a perfect spot for this, (laughs) I can't put it anywhere. (laughs) So it can go right to that whole extreme as well. Um, But not having a lot left in the tank for your kids as well or for your relationship. Sure, if you're feeling like you have to be a performing you know, circus performer all day, you're going to come home and be knackered. Oh, yeah, and that's one of the barriers to well-being for a lot of the people that I work with is that they've given so much that they find it just so hard to even contemplate the idea of giving to themselves. And it's also very uncomfortable to give to themselves because they feel much more comfortable in giving to others and being there for others and being available to others. But the idea of giving themselves time and space is like they can flirt with it, but when it comes down to the crunch, oh, no, that's just too hard. So the other thing I, I work a lot with with people is building the skills of self-compassion. So fundamentally seeing yourself as someone who's kind of worthy of care, uh, being motivated so that the you can sort of think of the skills, self-compassion is something you can learn. It's something that we're often very good at offering compassion to other people but have a lot of difficulty when you think about it, turning it back on ourselves. So the antidote to um, self-criticism is self-compassion, I think, really. And so it's learning, if you think about self-compassion, it's a set of behaviours. Again, like everything, I break the world up in this way. Uh, It's being motivated to help. It's being kind of empathetic and understanding of someone's experience and holding a non-judgmental attitude to that. It's using a like a warm tone of voice, kindness and care, that sort of warmth showing through. These are some of the qualities of self-compassion. And uh, it is really hard to turn that back on ourselves and sort of think, okay, the motivation to help, like what do I need? right now and how can I help myself in this moment maybe I need quiet or downtime maybe I need to as you would know self-care is not pretty you know maybe I need to go for a run or for a walk or go to the gym maybe I need to take some time to actually cook a healthy meal um self-care is is often hard work but it's also this kind of whole trying to develop a non-judgmental stance towards yourself. So where you might be able to say oh, to someone else, I can see that they're struggling and, and look look at what's going on for them right now, like actually being able to say, wow, I can see that I'm struggling and look at what's going on for me right now and what do I need and how can I help myself get that? So self-compassion is something that you can do, that you actually do as a set of behaviours, and it takes practice. It's, yeah, really takes practice. A lot of us just don't even, don't ever learn it as children. We don't, 
we learn, don't learn it. I it's interesting talking about teachers because I actually use a metaphor with my um, with my clients called the two teachers metaphor. I don't know if you have I spoken to, to you about that one before. I don't know that you haven't I, spoken to me about. I've, I've read your article on it and I was like, oh, that yeah. just really makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So do you want me to go through it? Absolutely. I think, listeners, okay. yeah, I think listeners would really benefit from understanding this. And it's also something that they could use with their students as an activity to teach it. Probably, yeah. I wrote So it's written up as an activity. It's on my website. So um, listeners can definitely pop on there and, and download and have a look to sort of go through it in themselves. It goes like this. Um, imagine that you had a child who was a normally developing five-year-old or four or five-year-old. They were just starting school and um, they're normally developing. So maybe they had a little bit of trouble sitting and concentrating or, you know, jumping up out of their chair a bit, or maybe they were having a bit of trouble with their numeracy or their, their handwriting, um, just like a normal kid. And um, they have two teachers in some sort of, let's just say, job share arrangement to here in South Australia, they're called reception teachers or kindergarten teachers or wherever you are based. And um, the first teacher speaks to your child like this. Um, As your child is struggling, she or he says, I don't understand why you haven't got this. I've already showed this to you. You should be better at this by now. You need to sit down and do your work like everybody else. What is going wrong here? Why can't you do this already? Can you imagine like having a, I always feel just slightly nauseated when I have to do that example. Okay. Right. That's the first teacher. And the second teacher is completely different. Um, She sits down with your child and says, hey, I can see you're struggling a little bit here. Um, show me where you're getting stuck. What is it? What help do you need? Let's just sit down and do a few more before you go out to play. So which teacher would you prefer to have for your child, Meg? Do you think oh, the first two, was- for sure. Like I, and as you said, that first version, that is a bit nauseating. And it actually took me back to my childhood and a few teachers that I had like that. And just yes. how much you remember that feeling yes. of feeling stupid or something's wrong with me because I can't do the task. But then I also yep. had that beautiful feeling, the second version of those teachers and people were like, oh, they understand, they get it, I'm trying and let's just go again. Like there's a real, real shift. Same room, same student, but a different perspective. So powerful. So you would, so for your child, you'd prefer the second one then for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and which teacher do you think is ultimately going to help your child learn better, like learn and grow and develop as a human, the first one or the second one? The second one. The second one, yeah, I'd say. So which teacher sounds more like the way you would talk to yourself? Well, I think initially it would have been more like the one, but I think with time and practice I'm more towards the two and much more like, uh, and I often share the story that um, I remember in year 12, I'd had a really tough big day and I came home and I was just so tired and dad was home for whatever reason. And I remember looking up and he just simply said, Meg, you can't kick 10 every day. And that was just a moment of, oh, so we're not meant to kick 10 every day. We're not, you know, and for dad, he can't remember saying it. Like it was just a, just a line. 
Um, but for me, I think I've been on a journey for this last, you know, 20 or so years to you can't kick 10 every day. And it's a language in our house now. My husband and I will say, how'd you go? It's like, oh, a sneaky behind. <laughs> we didn't really, <laughs> really didn't get far. And then it's great because some days you do kick 10. It's like, oh, great. That's a, a real excitement, but it's not expected. And so I feel like I've got there with practice and it's been an active practice. It's not something that comes naturally at all. It's something that I've worked at and I'm in a space where it's the new normal now. So most of my clients would look at me with horror on their face or maybe laugh and say, well, number one, that's exactly how I talk to myself and that's why they're sitting in my chair. And I'm wondering, Meg, whether the reason you can do all the amazing things you're doing right now is because you've learned how to talk to yourself more like that second teacher because putting yourself out there, doing podcasts, you know, coming up with programs, running workshops, all these amazing things you're doing is going to involve a fair amount of stuffing up, I imagine. And like, if you were to pull apart, even like you could, you could critique, if you were to be like the first teacher and critique every single thing that you were doing, you just, your head would explode, you know, you'd be left probably rocking in a fetal position in the corner like they'd be just because and that's the experience that I've had as well um the thing that really helped me unlock being able to do all the things I'm doing but because three months ago I'd never done a podcast before and now I've done like six of them or something like this is like and and you know launching a book and all the sorts of things that I'm doing is that when I stuff up, I'm kinder to myself about it and it allows me to recover really quickly and move on and keep keep going. Uh, so when I kind of started to develop that self-compassion, just like you, it unlocked an ability to do a whole lot more in my life. So if there was just one element, I mean, there's many, like, you know, and time's always limited, I would focus on on building that skill with people who struggle with perfectionism just like you have because isn't it it's transformational really you don't have to kick 10 every day it's, anymore it's changed my life it's changed the way that I can show up now and share what I know yeah. just last week I sent um a presentation that I had given, I sent the PDF and I noticed there was a spelling mistake in it. I just laughed. I was <laughs> like, oh, I spent, you know, spent sentence data. I've got the, um, spelt something wrong. I got a giggle. And then my next thought, which was interesting to note, where back in the day that wouldn't have been funny and I would have been like, can I check that that email has been sent? I would have gone to a different way. This time I got the giggles and like, oh, like I'm sure they know that I know how to spell sentence. Um, and then the next thing was, oh, that's a connection builder because I've learned that every time I stuff up or don't quite go to plan, it's an opportunity to build connection that I'm just human, I'm not perfect, I'm just here showing yep. up, sharing what I care about. Yeah, that's, that's so similar to how I would, yeah, frame it as well. Here I am. I've, people write comments in, in posts saying, I'm hoping there's a spelling mistake in this book. Like, <laughs> and they're commenting on it like, there's plenty. Every time I open it up, I notice something. You probably won't find them, but I see them all. I was like, why is that on that line? That shouldn't be in that activity. Like, it's not full of mistakes, but I, it's not perfect, you know, um, and no book is, but probably the author is going to notice that more than anyone. And yet I kind of laugh it off. Yep, there's plenty of mistakes now. Whereas I think, yeah, I would have been horrified thinking that that in the past. So it's been, it's great. We've obviously got a lot in common on this topic, actually. I oh, think. so much. Particularly I think, around that self-criticism. Well, I think that's why 
I want, and that's why I wanted to get you on this podcast because I share um, in my talks very often the five P's that hold us back from feeling and functioning well. And the first one is perfectionism, like a predictable pattern of behaviour that I've seen in big-hearted people. And every time I say it, I just see, as I said before, that body is like, ah, she's set back. And then I start giving examples and they're looking at me like, is she in my head? Is she been in my staff yeah. room? Is she there when I'm <laughs> asking your colleague to check my emails? Do you think that that sounds okay? You know, so it's not that I'm in their heads. It's just that it's very common and it's very practical and it's very experienced by a lot of educators and people have shared with me stories over the last 10 years like, oh, this is so it's just it's just a part of it. It's just predictable. And so that's why it's so important to have this conversation. And I really feel that the more we can understand ourselves, the more we can care for ourselves in a meaningful way, in a deep way. And it also opens up the, the door to care for others in a more meaningful and deep way and to slowly but surely move towards this idea that we're all human having a human experience, it's messy. I look back on some of the work that I did just two weeks ago and think, what was I thinking? And and for me, that's a sign of growth. That means that I've been putting stuff out there, that I'm doing something different. So I know we could talk about this topic um, all day because I just think there's so much gold in it. But I'd love to wrap this conversation up with an invitation for you to complete four sentences. Oh, goodness. Okay. What if I get them wrong? (laughs) Let's just try self-compassion, hey? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, I am inspired by. That's an easy one. I'm inspired by my clients, to be honest, just every day watching them make huge differences in their lives. And sometimes it takes a long time, but when they come back and they say, I tried something new or um, this is not bothering me anymore and I've decided to do this. It's just so inspiring. I get quite all goosebumpy at times. Beautiful. Oh, oh, absolutely. And when life feels hard. When life feels hard, which I think it often does, um, we are at the I don't know, are we in the third quarter of a pandemic? Are we still in the second? I don't know. Where are we? Where the hell are we? <laughs> um, when life feels hard, I think that that kindness is is critical, isn't it? I think being kind to ourselves and kind to others is, is absolutely critical. Uh, there's never been a more important time for it. Mm. An underrated skill is? An underrated skill, goodness. Um, I'm just going to go with having fun. It, it just get like ha- you have to let go of your ability to not look stupid. You know, like if they worry about looking stupid, having I think having fun is, is definitely as I'm sort of looking down the barrel of having a break over Christmas, thinking having fun. Geez, wouldn't that be nice? Like. Yeah, they'll have to practice that yeah. and <laughs> get back into the groove of like just letting rip and being silly. <laughs> oh, I love that. And I am looking forward to. Well, I'm obviously looking forward to having a break. <laughs> I won't <laughs> lie. I've also set myself homework to do over that break. Can you believe it? So I can. <laughs> I've got another book. I want to write a book um, called The Perfectionistic Helper and um 
sort of chatting to my publisher, I'll be chatting to, you know, just trying to find a home for this book is really important. I, I Because I think that what we need as helpers, whether you be a teacher or a physio or a therapist or a doctor, is quite is specific and it's a little bit different to because of that need to help and that desire to do good work where that comes from and because we're already trained professionals so we have a set of skills but we're perhaps not using them in in a way that's helping us so I think that's a really important book as a sort of a contribution to helpers out there um so that's my holiday project is actually to get up in the morning just write it like draft up a table of contents and a proposal for that and um so so I'm looking forward to a break but I'm also really looking forward to sort of fleshing that out because that's gets I need that break to get creative again yeah oh I'm so excited too I'm looking forward to that too I'm looking forward to reading that book because I think it's the book that people need to have because the more we can be in tune with this the more we can actually help ourselves and others. So thank you so much, Jennifer, for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. I have learned so much from this conversation and I have a feeling that people listening, their nervous systems may just relax a little bit and a sense of relief and maybe lean into a bit of fun. Who knows? That would be good. That would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah, thank you. It's been I've learned some things out of this conversation. So thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Jennifer. Bye. What an incredible conversation. I learned so much from my time with Jennifer. Just imagine what our homes, schools and communities could be like if we had the opportunity to move towards what's most important to us with 5% more willingness, flexibility and compassion. I get excited just thinking about it. To learn more about Jennifer's incredible work in the world, please visit her website. There you will find her free ebook, Understanding Perfectionism, a resource that I have gone back to time and time again this year. The two teacher activity that she shared during the conversation, and this activity can be used in your staff rooms, in your homes, in your classrooms. And while you're there, you can subscribe to Jennifer's newsletter list. I'm a subscriber and I love to read Jennifer's thoughts. Before you go, I would like to invite you to stop and take a moment to think about the two following questions. From this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your pearl? Number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to support your well-being? If any of the topics that we covered during today's conversation resonated with you, you will love my signature well-being program, Energy by Design. Energy by Design is a 10-week program for big-hearted educators that are ready and willing to experience more energy, clarity, and confidence in their lives. If you have been thinking about taking your well-being a little bit more seriously and putting your needs on the agenda, this is a space for you, a space to connect with other like-minded educators that want to connect, share, laugh, and learn together. Because when it comes to well-being, we know that it's much easier to do it when we have social support, when we have other people that care and want to see us succeed. In episode five, I chat with big-hearted educator Shannon Tracy about his energy by design experience. So if you want to know what it's like to really work with me, take a listen to episode five. 
The next round kicks off Monday, the 31st of January, and I am so excited to see what we can create. I am so passionate about creating schools that have thriving adults so young people can look up and think, yes, that's how I want to live my life. That's what it's like to be an adult. There's energy, excitement, connection, and hope. To keep in the loop with everything that I'm up to and what I'm loving, subscribe to my well-loved thought of the week email. To support the show, please rate and review on iTunes and share with your family, friends and colleagues. If every listener shared with one person, we can create an incredible ripple effect. Imagine a world where people had the language, the skills and mindset to be able to thrive. Oh, it just gets me so excited thinking about it. So share, share, share. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing wellbeing education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.